three, two, one. Welcome back to Podcast Noor. I am your host, Noor Tajuri, and I'd like to personally welcome you to this storytelling session, no matter what your intention of listening is. This is our second episode with an anonymous guest, the brilliant author of the memoir, Hijab Butch Blues. Lamia H. is queer, non-binary, and Muslim. Yes, there are people who are all three. They are a writer and organizer based in New York City. Lemia's work has appeared in Salon, Vice, Vox, and others. Their organizing work centers around creating spaces for LGBTQ plus Muslims, fighting Islamophobia, and abolishing prisons. We recorded this conversation during the month of Ramadan and reflected on the similarities between Muslim community care and queer community care. We talked about the common American Muslim struggle of double lives. We got into the concept of questioning faith and even shared around our personal relationships with hijab. I read Hijab Butch Blues in less than two days. The writing is profound, personal, and clear. Lemia poses questions throughout the book for people of all faiths. And it is no surprise that the book was featured as Roxanne Gay's March 2023 selection of the Audacious Book Club. I also feel a deep sense of urgency with this episode. Homophobia and transphobia are rampant in the United States, and it has been weighing heavily on my heart the role that many American Muslims have unfortunately been playing in this. Scholars and imams that I grew up listening to are now making dangerous anti-LGBTQ plus statements. And I believe it is more important now than ever to amplify the human stories of community members who need our protection and love. I want to thank all of the queer people in my life who have time and time again shown up in solidarity when Muslims have been marginalized and persecuted. May we always be a protection and light for each other. May we always lead with love. And may you enjoy this episode of Podcast Noor with Lamia H. Amazing. Okay. So thank you so much for, uh, for your time and for this incredible book that I read in two sittings in 24 hours, less than hours actually. I know I'm such a fan. Um, You know, what's so interesting about this is that the first person who told me about your book is actually one of my best friends um, named Becca who lives in Italy and she saw it there, found it there or something. And she sent me the book and she was like, I think you would really love this. And then I, I think somebody else also told me about it, but anyway, I saw Glennon Doyle's review of the book and I was like, Oh my gosh, I got so excited. And I was, I was like, I have to, I have to read this and I have to talk to this person. So I'm so honored and grateful that you're on the pod and that you said yes. So thank you. Welcome, Nemia. Thanks. Um, I really appreciate that because I feel so honored to be on here because I've been following your work for a while and just, I don't know, it's also just so great to be talking to someone who's Muslim about this. Um, So I'm really excited (laughs) for our conversation. Me too. I was like, I was talking to Adam earlier and he was like, so how are you approaching this 
interview, like journalistically, how'd you prepare for it? I was like, I've been, this is an interview. I feel like I've been prepared for, for a very long time. Like I just, there's so many questions and so many points of conversation that I feel like I'm, I look forward to us having right now because, um, I think that, you know, for me as somebody who's on a spiritual journey myself and asking Mm. the big questions of who am I and what do I believe and all of the things in between. I think that when it comes to um, like bodily autonomy and just like transparently, like queerness in the Muslim community and like, and hijab specifically, those are two things that I'm always just like, I have like this big question mark around of like, why do we, like, why are we so obsessed with Mm. this in like a way that isn't leading with like love and autonomy and agency. So anyway, the way we kick off these conversations is a very simple question, which is how is your heart doing today? Lamia? Um, you know, that's like, I think that's one of the hardest questions for me to answer because I don't know what your upbringing was like, but in my uh, very immigrant Muslim upbringing, we did not talk about feelings like mm. at all. Like, I think I just I even came to the realization that you're supposed to feel your feelings really late in life. Like it just, you know, wasn't intuitive to me. I didn't realize that, you know, you're just supposed to feel them as opposed to uh, suppressing them or just glossing them over. Um, So answering that question is really hard for me because I've had to like learn how to answer it both like honestly aloud and then also just for myself. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to be totally vulnerable here and be like, I'm kind of nervous. I get nervous. Um, every time I'm doing an interview or podcast, I get nervous in general when I'm um, doing anything that requires sort of like speaking, um, which is why I guess I'm a writer. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I'm, I'm both nervous and also just really excited. Where do you feel your nervousness? Oh my God. I've had so much therapy to, um, to uh, uh, be able to answer that question, but like always in my throat. Mm. What about you? Where do you feel things? It's funny that you said throat because I actually, I think sometimes it's often my throat as well. I also have like a thyroid related autoimmune disease. Mm. And I um, was talking to my aunt who also has one about it. And she was saying how like, you know, trauma in this area oftentimes is like rooted in when you feel like you weren't able to say something that you needed to say or speak Mm. on something, or if you've had trouble, like getting something out that needed to be said. And so, um, sometimes I'll feel like a lot of warmth around my throat as well, actually. And I feel like being able to, uh, notice that is Mm. a really big win. Cause I think, you know, you can feel nervousness all over your entire body, but when you're able to pinpoint like the source, mm. um, you can better ask that question is like, what is the message that my body is telling me right now or is sending to me right now? So. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then that makes it easier to address it. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oof. Well, so I read this book, shared it immediately and even in simply just sharing your book, I just was really bombarded with a lot of messages. Yeah. And, um, and I had people who, you know, 
I don't always talk to or hadn't reached. We just had so many people reach out to mm. us about the book. And it was so interesting how activating and how triggering it was because to me, I, I mean, I, I felt, I really thought it was such a beautiful and phenomenal approach to writing. Like you use these amazing stories from the Quran and the prophets that we heard growing up to really deeply reflect and document your own personal journey of coming into your own. Like it was really about coming into yourself as an individual. And mm. it makes me, um, it makes me sad when I find that people react to somebody documenting and speaking their truth. And so I thought about you a lot during those few days because I was just like, man, this is just from sharing it. I know that you have cultivated a really beautiful community, but I have to ask when, tell me about the feelings that you had leading up to publishing Hijab Butch Blues and the reaction or the response that you got shortly after? Um, I definitely felt a lot of feelings in the lead up. Um, I was definitely very sort of like scared and nervous um, because I, I mean, like part of it is just the act of writing a memoir in general. Totally. Um, yeah. Because yeah. you do all the writing sort of by yourself and, you know, solitarily. And then you put it out there in the world. And then suddenly all these people are reading. Um, and a lot of what I wrote feels really vulnerable because it feels really sort of like honest. And um, it, it just felt like I was, you know, talking about myself in ways that I don't generally with other people. And mm -hmm. so, I think I was just like really nervous in general about that aspect of it that, you know, suddenly everyone will like know all of these things about me. Um, and then I was definitely like very, I, I was, I was scared about the sort of like Muslimness of it and how it'll be received. Um, and to be, to be quite honest, I was actually like scared on both ends. I was scared about totally. how my critiques about queerness will be, um, will be received too. And the way that those can sometimes get the, the way that queerness can end up reproducing normativity in these ways that, um, are really hard and also sort of like racism and, um, classism and, uh, transphobia. Um, uh, so I was, I was, I was scared about that. I was like, will people still invite me to their potlucks? Um, and uh, then I was also just like really sort of scared about um, how it'll be received in terms of um, Muslim communities. Um, and part of it was also like, will Muslim people read it? Will people be so sort of like um, defensive because of the synopsis or will they just sort of like glance right. at the title and then have their preconceived notions and then not read it? Even though for me, what was important to me when I was writing this book was that I wanted it to be really, really Muslim. Like I wanted to not, you know, apologize for faith or for um, the way in which our stories should also be considered canon. Um, and the way that like, you know, we like, I didn't want to explain things. I don't want, I didn't want to apologize um, mm -hmm. for, uh, for faith and for piety and for, um, uh, taking Islam seriously. And so 
Yeah. And so I was, because of that, especially, I think I was really nervous um, for how it would be received. It's, you know, I've also had experiences where things get taken out of context or people have reactions based on a headline or people have a reaction based on um, a lack of the fuller story. And for that response, like that very surface level response, I just, I very much feel like that's just not in our control. Those are people who Mm. are having opinion, who make those opinions and who publicize those opinions. Mm. You can have opinions, but like to have the audacity to broadcast them or share them and take up that space without your opinion being fully formed or thought or um, engaged. I feel Mm -hmm. like that you just kind of have to like weed out because it's, it's simply truly a reflection of somebody's own inner insecurity and, and wanting to control a specific image. And I think that, you know, when it comes to Muslim representation specifically, because there is still such a lack of Muslim representation in media in general, that when there's like a hyper um, individualized experience that's documented that people want to resist, there's like, there's, there's this reaction that I had, you know, when people were reaching out and it was just like, who are you to, you know, say, oh no, this story is not valid or is not welcome. Mm. Like it's a person, a person is a story and their story is their truth and they get to take up all the space that they want. And if you feel so strongly about it being different than yours, then go work on yours and go focus on yours. And so, um, I, I really loved and admired and respected that you maintained, you know, not just like the Muslimness of it all, but the fact that I was revisiting the stories of the prophets throughout your book in a way that I had never done myself. I had never asked those specific mm. questions around it. And something that the book really taught me and your writing really taught me is how what a beautiful act of faith it is to ask questions that you didn't Mm. know that you were allowed to ask. And I think I often thought of that in like very personal regards, like questions I was asking about myself, but in when you were sharing, you know, the stories of Medium or the prophet Abraham or, um, or even Eunice and Yusuf, like all of those stories came with questions and a rethinking that was so personal. So I would love to just understand a little bit of how you and yourself got to a place where you were able to rethink the stories that you were taught and ask bigger questions. And I know it started with the story of Medium for you when you were younger. Um, So I'd love to know how that kind of changed the way that your brain thought about stories. Yeah. Um, So I think it's so interesting because even in the Quran itself, I think there are so many stories of people, including prophets, like constantly questioning God and like constantly questioning their faith. Yeah. And to me, that's so powerful. Like, you know, Ibrahim, for example, has like talked to God and like still like is like, hey, I'm not totally sure that I know oh gosh, yeah. or that I understand how you would, you know, bring back something that's dead. How how would you like make it alive again? And like the fact that, you know, Ibrahim is asking God this directly, like it just like 
I find that so powerful. And you know, that's not the only story. There's also Musa who was like, Hey God, I'd love to see you. And then, you know, Allah's like, what? No. Um, you know, <laughs> this like mountain can't bear to see me. So how do you think you would be able to survive, you know, being like seeing me? Um, and then, yeah, there are just like so many other stories. Um, there's also, yeah, there's also the story of the man who like comes across, um, a, a dead donkey and just yeah and I just like I find it so powerful um that we in our holy text we're being taught to question faith um and you know at the end of the day I think that's like one of the most powerful things about faith in general is that it only it exists because of doubt um and it exists because mm. of questions um because otherwise if you knew for sure then like it wouldn't be faith um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But there's there's just something about it. And the fact that it's like folded into our religion feels just so powerful. And yeah. yeah. And to me, you know, I read a lot as a kid. Um, I, uh, you know, was like always reading books and I was always sort of like questioning the characters and their motivations and their decisions and being like, why is this person doing this? Why not this? Um, and to me, growing up, it actually felt pretty uh, consistent to do that with stories from the Quran as well. And, mm. you know, not everyone is open to questioning. Um, not, op not everyone is open to listening to these questions. And, you know, I definitely had teachers at Quran teachers or like, you know, um, I'd go to talks and, you know, people would just be really uncomfortable at questions. But, um, can I you think share some of that, like, can you, I, I, I'm really curious about that because that's something that I'm like, you know, investigating right now is like, why are we so afraid to ask questions? And because mm. you are, you know, I also strongly believe that like this, our faith tradition is one that encourages asking questions, but even, even when it's right there in, in, in the faith itself, very explicitly when the actual act of asking questions, um, happens it's not always met with a very open response or response that encourages exploration anywhere outside of the way we were traditionally taught so what did that look like to you and like what is a question that you may be asked a teacher and how did they respond and how did you start to understand oh this is like a human problem this is like a person problem this is like an insecurity yeah what i doubt yeah, what I find most fascinating is that there's no correlation between who is open to sort of like being asked questions and like, in quote, progressiveness. Um, so, for example, um, when I was younger, I had this Quran teacher who, you know, was an imam at a mosque nearby. And, you know, he was just like very traditional and, um, you know, had a beard, wore a thobe and like, you know, um, just just like was like super traditional, but like, I remember being like six or seven and learning to read the Quran with him. And he would just like be so open to answering me and my brothers, like totally ridiculous questions. Um, and there's this part in the book actually, where I talk about this incident in which I asked him if God was a man or a woman. And, and he was just like, so patient being like, well, neither, even though, you know, um, he could have, you know, deflected the question or like he could have, uh, you know, been like, well, you know, in the Quran, uh, God uses like Hua as a pronoun and, you know, but like 
he was just like, he just took our questioning so seriously. And I think there's this way in which people condescend towards kids, especially, um, yeah. especially when kids have like questions about faith and, um, and they just assume that kids won't be able to handle complexity, even though kids are just like, constantly navigating their worlds and like constantly learning things. And so actually they like, they're like thinking is so complex already. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's definitely like something that, you know, um, comes to mind this incident in which my very traditional Quran teacher took us so seriously. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, you know, there have been other times when, um, so uh, another story that I write about in the book is when I was at this halakha at this like, like feminist halakha where, um, you know, I was using they pronouns for God and like people kind of freaked out. And um, so it's really interesting to me how, yeah, there's just like no correlation between sort of like progressiveness and uh, tradition, and I guess like traditionality and, um, and the being able to like handle questions. Um, yeah. Mm. Hi there, Noor here from At Your Service. At Your Service is a storytelling company. We tell stories as a form of service. And the way I think about it is story first, medium second. Meaning, we don't think, hey, I really want to produce a podcast. What should it be about? No, we think of it as We have a story we want to tell. What is the best medium, the best way to tell it? Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it's a documentary series, a virtual talk, a speaker series, a dinner party. Maybe it's a book club. The list goes on and on. We also love being of service to companies and brands and nonprofits to help them tell the best story possible so that they can serve their audience and their communities. So if you want to check out more of our work, you can do so at ays.media. You can also find the transcripts for all our podcast episodes right there. And if you're enjoying this podcast right now, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review and give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this style of podcast or if you're looking for something else. And of course, if you have any stories you'd like to pitch for us, you can do that through our website as well. As always, at your service. Well, what's a question that you're asking yourself right now these days? Oh, I'm asking myself a lot of questions um, always, but uh, Ramadan just ended and I've been thinking a lot about community and um, I don't know, kind of like the extension of community um, and community care to people that we uh, don't necessarily know. Um, I've just, I've been thinking about Sudan a lot and, um, just like all of these people basically made refugees overnight, um, having to leave one's home. Um, and just, yeah, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about, uh, what are our rights towards other people and, um, Mm. people that, you know, we may not directly be in community with, um, as in like people who we don't see on a regular basis, but like who exist and are, um, and are, and should be part of our networks of care. Um, I'm also thinking a lot about trans kids and, um, just like healthcare rights being taken away. Um, people who are pregnant and, you know, um, wanting sort of like reproductive justice, um, 
And yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how to extend uh, community care to people who are mm. really struggling right now. Mm. Well, how, what does community care look like for yourself and how, how have you redefined community as who you are today? Um, it's definitely something that I think changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and I think it's so interesting because I think there's so many parallels between sort of like queer community care and Muslim community care. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I, I think about that a lot. And this idea of sort of like why going to a mosque or like going to someplace on a regular basis, like like how that creates community and how that creates networks of care. Um, and yeah, I just like, I think of people going to like Friday prayers every week and like seeing the same people over and over and noticing when someone isn't there or, mm -hmm. um, or just the way in which that sets up ways to help each other, um, and be there for each other, whether it's, you know, um, like, babysitting or helping someone out if they're facing food insecurity. Um, and, but then also, you know, it's really interesting because um, queer communities have that too. And uh, it was definitely something that I feel like I was missing a lot when I, you know, just moved here and was learning how to be a person in the U.S. and then also like a person after college. Um, and, you know, just really growing into um, what kind of life I want to live, who are the people that I want to be surrounded by um, and finding sort of like queer Muslim community specifically just really like changed my life. It taught me so much about organizing, about um about conflict, about like how to be in community with people that you wouldn't necessarily choose as your friends, um, people that, uh, you know, um, intergenerational friendships, um, how to show up for each other. Um, yeah. And, and I think being, I think seeing other people live their Muslimness and live their queerness really helped me come into those identities for myself. Mm -hmm. Mm. what does it mean to be queer and muslim to you today but i would also love for you to reflect on what that how you would have answered that question when you were a young person who was just figuring out they were queer you know it's really interesting because i don't like I think people expect this sort of like conflict between the two identities. And I don't think I really grew up experiencing that. Um, I mean, part of it was I just I didn't have necessarily the words um to talk about my queerness. Um and uh I yeah, I like so yeah, so to me like those things weren't necessarily in, con in conflict with each other. They both just were. Um, and, you know, I was figuring out both of them in some ways at the same time. I was figuring out how I wanted to be Muslim. Um, you know, I was figuring out uh, what parts of it like really, really spoke to me and what parts I was angry at um, and what parts I uh, mm. 
what I, yeah, how I wanted to interpret things, how I wanted to um, live my Muslimness. Um, uh, and then I think that there was a similar process with queerness too, where, uh, you know, sometimes it felt very like hegemonic, like there was like one particular way to be queer, you know, you like come out to your parents in this big like fanfare and then, you know, uh, they can either choose to accept you or not. And then, you know, you're like out and like, here's your life. Um, whereas that isn't how things have played out for me. And so I, I feel like I was also really trying to figure out what parts of queerness really spoke to me and which, mm. which parts like allowed me to live a life that felt intentional and, um, and felt that, felt was rooted in sort of like community and care and love and justice. Um, and so to me, I, I feel like I was figuring out both of those at the same time. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I think I'm still figuring them out. I think that's the beauty of, um, of both those identities actually is that, uh, even now I feel like I don't, have it entirely figured out, but there are things that, um, I know I value and that I want, uh, in my life and yeah. And, and, you know, again, like, it's so interesting because I think that's what God wants us, wants of us too. this idea of sort of like intentionality and effort and constantly like figuring out, um, mm -hmm. how we want to live and, uh, yeah. So I feel good about that, um, being in uh, a process of figuring it out. So how do you, how do you like explain that or share that with young people who also may have not, and I shouldn't even just say young people, just people in general who are of the Muslim faith tradition and haven't come out to their family or their friends or are dealing with this like isolation. I think, okay, I should just ask it a lot easier. Mm. So I think that Muslims, especially American Muslims in general, um, you know, we held in a thought last week or a couple of weeks ago and I asked and somebody mentioned living a double life growing up. And I mm. asked them, I was like, you know what, raise your hand if, around the table if you're a Muslim and if you, if you've ever felt like you were living a double life and almost every single hand went up and this isn't obviously wow. like queerness or anything like that. It's just the fact that, you know, so many American Muslims have felt like they had to have different versions of themselves to the different people around them. And it's rare to have a scenario, especially growing up where like you are, you feel like you can be your fullest self around your family or your community, especially when there is a lot of judgment or there is a lot of shame or there is a lot of, I'm, I can get in trouble for this, or there is a lot of imposing your belief onto someone else. And so, you know, you, articulated beautifully in in the book what it meant for you to like find community and to find like a a, a community family that you are your fullest self around and as of you know reading the book your immediate family does not know and i feel like that parallels or represents a lot of like this you know, this obstacle of being multiple people to the people that we love so that we can 
maintain a sense of safety or maintain Mm. a sense of like still being loved and still being welcome. And so like, how do you, how do you advise people who are navigating that internal battle who are just like, because I feel like the, you know, compartmentalization of identities can be so exhausting. And Mm. so it can be so burden burdensome, but like, if that ends up being the decision that you make, because that's what gives you the most peace, like, how do you, what do you say to people who are, who are like, I don't know, this is getting, I'm really tired. Oh, that's so real and such a good question. And one that I genuinely don't know how to answer because yeah, I mean, I guess like the only thing I have to add to your beautifully articulated um, question is that, I don't know, sometimes leading a double life and sometimes sort of like not telling your parents or your, um, I guess, like wider community, certain things just really comes from a place of love, love and empathy. And um, I, I, I don't know, I think about that a lot in terms of my parents and just um, and other yeah, other people who are sort of like navigating their lives and uh, and also choosing what to share or not share with their parents. But like, I don't know, sometimes this idea of authenticity and like living your full self, I don't know, like maybe it's okay to sometimes, um, I don't know, hide parts of yourself from other people. Um, yeah, I don't know, because sometimes it can be really rooted in just like, a love and an empathy and just like a knowing that the person that you're hiding things from just won't understand. And they don't, it's not that they don't have the, it's not that they don't have the information. It's just sometimes people just don't have the capacity to understand. And, you know, like, and sometimes people come from really like hierarchical cultures where like respect is such a big thing. And just like, you know, like respecting your elders and just like not fighting back or not asking questions. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's just like, yeah, sometimes. But then there's love. That's the thing though. But then there's love and, and I don't know, Namia, I I just, sometimes when I think about it too, I'm just like, you know, I think about how the families that we come onto this planet with, like Mm. we chose each other, we are each other's tests and like I've been thinking a lot about how love to me, I believe is like the source and the root of everything that matters and everything Mm. that's real. And that's like the one thing that I know for sure is that the answer is always love. Mm. And I think that, you know, I, I would love if you're comfortable to talk about just like some of the things that you've, and you can feel free to be like, nah, not for me, but like, you know, you are, in a loving relationship and you have, you lead this like really beautiful love filled life. And do you ever think about like, I wanting to share that with the people that, you know, love you and have, and and know you and like, is there when you're with them or is, is there ever like a, a moment of just like, I wish we could go there, you know? Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's really, really hard. There's something so sad and tragic about it. And there's something just like really heartbreaking about people that I love not knowing that my life is filled with so much love. Um, But, 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, but like, how yeah. do you think about like, how do you because because you are I'm 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 asking this for all the people who are going to listen to this and who are in that same in those same feelings. Like, how do you choose yeah. to really navigate that? And how do you like, is there a period at the end of like, I will never tell my parents or I will never share this part with them? Or is it a question mark? Is it today? I'm not, but maybe tomorrow I will. No, it's definitely a question mark. And, um, you know, like it, it obviously like doesn't work for everyone. Um, so I, I think a lot about like trans folks, for example, who don't necessarily have the luxury of not being out. Um, right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I really wish I had some sort of like magical reframing that would make it easier or that would make it, um, yeah, that, that would make it like more possible, but it's, it's hard and you live it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think that you using that pain or test to and making it into art and making it into words is such a beautiful service because I think simply the act of of literally putting together a book and being like hey you're not alone you're not alone you're not alone and this is how this is it's not like you're like hey I figured out how we can do this it's I figured out how I do this and Mm. I hope that you can like it's the power of representation. I hope that you can see some of yourself in me in this. Well, when was the first time you ever felt properly represented in media? Properly represented? I still don't feel properly represented. Hey, I'm Nor Tagori, and I've been telling stories my entire life. For my new podcast rep, I've spent years examining a more personal story about how the misrepresentation of Muslims and media has impacted American society. I thought I knew the story because I thought I knew my story. But the more I looked for singular, clear answers, the more questions I had. Our story guides include academics, artists, actors, and we bounce around through American history and culture, witness our present and future unfold, and then we find out how these stories affect all of us. Welcome to Rep. Expression is a space in the heart that is unleashed and let free. It runs wild. Listen to Rep on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. I've been thinking a lot. I've myself have just been rethinking hijab a lot, too, which is also why this book was so touching and moving for me, because it felt like it was it's something that you know, you came to from this place of like your own want and your own reflection on Medium, the mother of Jesus and and her um, individuality and power. And so I'd love to know, I never like to ask questions about hijab because I don't like to be asked questions. And that seems to be (laughs) the only thing that everybody likes to ask me about, but um, it is in the title of your book. And so I feel like it's okay. But I would love to know like what your relationship with hijab is and if you have ever, if you ever do rethink it or what are the questions that you ask about it or what does it mean to you? 
Um, first of all, it's really nice to be talking about this. Like, I don't usually like I know. talking about it, <laughs> but it's actually like, I love that sort of framing. And I love that, like, I love being able to talk about it with someone who's also <laughs> grappling with it. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely something I grapple with a lot. And, you know, it looks different for me on different days. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes my hijab is like, you know, a uh, a, a headscarf and sometimes it's a beanie um, and sometimes it's a backwards hat. Um, so it takes like many shapes and forms. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, I think the thing I, I actually really dislike when people make it about modesty or even about like covering your hair as if like, same that's like, yeah. the yeah. As if like, those are sort of like the endpoints or the like, or even like, something to strive towards for me it's like it's it's a way of reminding myself of god um and i think the times in which i've grappled with it the most um are weirdly the times that i've needed it the most um so yeah i don't know i think the, Wait, the thing tell me that, more like, about that oh you would you would pick the like <laughs> one thing that I dropped in there that was uh yeah no I just like I think to me um it's it's a reminder of God um every time I put it on and you know obviously this is not an every time I put it on you know sometimes I just like put it on um right but to me when it's working best it's like okay I'm going about my day and here's this thing that I'm doing for God. Here's this thing that like makes me feel closer to so many of the like beautiful, complicated figures in the Quran that I um, really admire. It makes me feel it, it makes me feel like I'm part of something that's bigger than myself, like part of you know, the universe in some way. And I know that's so cheesy, but like, it just, it feels like a connection. Um, and I think that to me, yeah, I think to me, that's like, that's the most important thing. And, um, in the times when I have sort of like not wanted to wear it or the times that it's taken different forms, um, I think just like coming back to this idea of sort of like letting that feeling move through me um, and like not fighting it and just sort of like being like, okay, this is like something that I'm grappling with. It's something that I'm asking questions about. It's something that um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out just like, you know, the prophets were figuring it out. Um, Do you yeah, think, I you think you can fully figure it out while wearing it? Oh my God. Another excellent question. Well, and I, I don't know. Because, like, I yeah. think as a journalist mm. who is like always striving to be objective and then also internally trying to like be, a, because like for me, mm. you no, know, I feel this I've for, since I finished my investigation rep, which like kind of broke me wide open and asking these bigger questions of who are we and mm. why are we the way that we are and why are we alive? I feel like especially with hijab that there's been such there's like such a a, a weight of mm. what you are representing and it and and because it's being so politicized even recently and stuff I just 
And, you know, obviously there is a component of like being a public figure who's been, who's known Mm. while wearing this and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, okay, wait, why am I, what, why am I actually doing this? And have I, have I ever rethought it? And Mm. like, do I, is this something that I'm asking all these questions? Right. And then I'm just like, wait, are these questions that I can actually ask while engaging and wearing it? Do I need to become more objective in order to really ask this? And this is like a really tremendous, you Mm. know, like question to have to ask because there it because the reality of it is that everyone has an opinion about it and it's so scrutinized that like I'm realizing oh you know since the second I started wearing it it's always been scrutinized it's always been talked about so I'm trying to navigate myself like what is the most objective and authentic and true way that I can actually ask these questions and find answers that are not influenced by other people. I can't wait for this like essay or podcast that you're going to do about (laughs) this because I think it's going to be so deep and I think it's going to like it's going to ask more questions than it answers, which I know is so annoying. Um, But I I really I I can't wait to um, I can't wait to see what comes out of your questions um out of my downward spiral out of your upward spiral it really sounds like upward an upward spiral, spiral. Thank yeah thank you yeah so yeah i mean i th- those are that's what i'm thinking about so i want i would love to know because as i hear you talk about like your reasons for wearing hijab i've said all of those reasons mm. too like i've yeah. said every single thing and i and i and i felt it and i also am just like now i'm like okay but I think, I don't know, fundamentally, I'm like, is, does God, do I believe that Mm. God wants my hair to be covered or is it about Mm. hair or why is it, why is it that when people react so much to seeing hair, like it feels like, you know, a person who chooses to wear it is being reduced to that. And that's not just Muslims and non-Muslims. It's especially for Muslims. Like it's something that I feel like I'm just like, wait, this right reducing me to just this thing that I choose to do is so dehumanizing. And so how do I like kind of take back my own humanity and figure that out for myself? And these are again, all questions, no answers. And I'm in a very big state of asking questions, but I'd love to know if you've gotten there with your questions. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting for me is that another angle of questions that, um, about hijab that like really, uh, has me in a tizzy is, um, is the way that it like, it ends up feminizing people. Um, and it really like fucks with, um, notions of gender. Um, but yeah, so I think about it a lot in terms of my gender identity too. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I don't know. I think like, I, I think it's interesting because for a really long time, I thought that I couldn't call myself non-binary because, I wore hijab and like, you know, and that is so it makes me be read as a woman um, uh, in this very sort of like overt way. Um, And yeah. And so to me, what's also been really interesting is sort of like playing with what hijab looks like. Like, so, for example, when I wear a beanie and walk down the street, um, people can't necessarily tell that it's my hijab. And so. I don't know. The way that I'm read is so different. And I know it's so cliche to say a lot this, more non-binary. Like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
But, um, you know, sometimes I get the sort of like queer head nod from people like the like, hey, like I see you, which is really interesting because I do that head nod with hijabis, you know, like every time I see hijabi, I'm like, hey, (laughs) eye contact, like super secret head nod. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So to me, another aspect of it is also the sort of like um, genderedness of it. Um, But I also on my end, I think. I think weirdly my wearing hijab also like expands that like, yeah. So I don't know. Those are also angles that I'm thinking about a lot. Yeah. I mean, so, okay. I guess I should, I'll I'll just like ask you, like, do you, what do you think based on your own reading and interpretation and how you have like come to the faith? What is hijab to you? Like, what is it? Is it about covering our hair and bodies? Like, is it a connection to God? Like, what is it? Yeah, no, I think it's about like God consciousness um, and it can take on different forms. Um, It can take on uh, vastly different forms for people. Um, I also like, I don't know. I just like, I also think that there are multiple paths to God, like just because the path that I'm on works for me doesn't necessarily mean that it works for other people. And I actually like, I don't think God would be petty enough to be like, Hey, here's this other path that is bringing this person closer to them. But like, they'd be like, no, wait, there's only one path. Yeah. I don't know. That's what, that's exactly how I feel. And that's, that's why I say it's like a human problem because it's like, why do we, even with like the, like wanting to call God, they, because God Mm. also refers to themselves as we in the Quran and stuff. And just being like, why do we think that like the majesty of God who we can't fully comprehend in our brains would Mm. get offended Mm -hmm. by a word? that they know in their heart, like in our hearts, what our intention is, how we're choosing to connect like that. That's why it just feels like it's like, no, God isn't offended. You're offended because you're afraid because you don't like, because we don't let our minds go there. We don't ask those questions or we're really just trying to stick to like, well, I'm not worthy of interpreting things for myself because like you have to be a learned scholar. Like there's this notion of like, unless you're a right. learned scholar, you can't say things out loud, which I'm not here to say like, I'm a historian or I know all of the stories or all of that. That's not it at all. But I don't think that you need to be a learned scholar to ask questions and uh, to engage in conversation with God. Yeah, I agree. And then like, this is also the same God that has the most like, the most like, beautiful names ascribed to them including the most merciful and and you know the most like loving and um the the most kind and like yeah I don't know I think sometimes um we forget those things yeah so something that I noticed that you did in the book you talk about you like all of the chapters are broken up by these stories of different prophets And I was hesitant. I was like, do I want to ask this? Do I not want to? But I was thinking about it too much. So I was like, of course, I'm going to ask it. And you obviously can answer it exactly how you want to. Um, So when it comes to queerness, the story that is always referred to in like conservative Muslim communities is the story of Lut or Lot. And you specifically did not reference 
you didn't reference that story in the book. You didn't even Mm -hmm. touch on like what the traditional you weren't like in in the Quran or in tradition in the conservative form of the tradition. This is what people think. You were just like, no, this is my story. I'm talking about it through my reflections. And you engaged so deeply and so thoughtfully with the stories of so many of the other prophets and figures in in the religion. So tell me about that decision and if it was something that you thought about and if it was how maybe you chose to engage with that story off the page. Um, That is an excellent question. You really went there. (laughs) Um, I'm like, wait, listen, I'm a Muslim woman who's interviewing you. Like, we're just going to skip through everything. Hope that everybody reads the book and gets straight to the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, so what's really interesting is that I feel like I have been engaging with that story so much um, since I sort of like came into my queerness that at this point it feels like it it, it feels like I've engaged with it so much that it's almost wow. like boring. Um because there's so many different interpretations of it, including, um, you know, what the people of Lot were punished for, um, uh, their interpretations about how it was actually rape and not um, sodomy, um, their their interpretations about sort of like their highway robbery and just like all of these other terrible things that they did. And, you know, a lot of people have written um, extensively about um, the ways in which, you know, um, Prophet Lut, like, offers his daughters and like why would he do that like that's that's like such a weird like like what are you offering them in terms of like sex or like marriage like but like marriage is never mentioned anywhere and so I don't know there's just like there's there's a lot of like there's a lot of um layers to that story that I think we don't always fully know um and there are a lot of layers that are confusing and just um just not yeah just we just don't know um and so one of the people who has written about it is um scott kugel in his book um homosexuality in islam and yeah yeah i don't know i think that there are so many different interpretations of it that i like i don't know other people have written about it better than i could does that make sense um yeah totally it's like, I feel like when I talk to queer Muslims, they talk, they, they share that sentiment of like, there's so many different interpretations. And then mm-hmm. when you hear people in like the communities that I grew up in, which were a lot more conservative, they're like, there's no other, there's like this, almost like this um reaction of like, there are no other interpretations. Mm. And not only are there not any other interpretations, but if you bring forth any other interpretations, the first instinctual reaction is to dismiss it or discredit the person who wrote it Mm -hmm. as if they are just trying to write something to appease themselves. And it's just like, but isn't that so limiting like that? And sometimes I wonder if the obscurity in that story is also just a test Mm. to see if people will choose the path of like love and Mm. acceptance or they'll choose the path of trying to control and put people down because I've never for me personally and I all of the things I'm saying are my personal opinions but I feel like you know you it's one thing to be like everybody goes through different tests in life but I I don't feel like you know love is something that 
you get tested by in that way Mm. where it's just like you can experience love, but you can't have it. Like that Mm. doesn't make sense because God is love. And so, so yeah. So sometimes I wonder if like the obscurity of that story and the way that people react to it is part of the test of like, are you going to um, think about this through the lens of like a loving God? Or are you going to think about it through the lens of like wanting to control other people? And even if you don't ever get to that place, what is the obsession with trying Mm. to control other people's bodies? Like, this is like what I keep coming back to is like, why are we so obsessed with controlling other people's bodies, whether it comes to wearing the hijab or not wearing the hijab Mm. or queerness or transness? Like what, why, why are we like not just focused on ourselves and being a good person ourselves? Yeah, I love, I really, really, really love that, um, that reframing. Um, and I especially love the idea that, um, maybe the, maybe the obscurity is deliberate and there's, um, there's a test in there. Um, and, and also, I mean, like at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's God's place to judge us. Um, and the best that we can do is sort of try to live a life that, um, feels, uh, that feels like it's worthy of this, this life that God has given us. Mm, Yeah. I love that. Hmm. So my whole hypothesis of why you decided to not write the story, not put that in your book is simply because you're like, yeah, I just engaged with it way too much that I found it boring to write about. (laughs) Yes. This is, this is why I needed to ask because yeah. I wanted to just like get out of my head and be like, it wasn't some big philosophical scheme. It was just, that wasn't meant for the book. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about your relationship with writing. Like, and just uh, if if you're open to like sharing a little bit more of your background, like what role did writing play in mm. your life? And um, I know you never really specifically share where your family's from and stuff, but if you're open to it, I would just love to know like, the traditions that you come from that, that, that led Mm. you to choosing this as your art form? So I read a lot as a kid and then also as a young adult. So I don't know. I I think of reading as sort of like pre-writing. It is pre-writing. It totally is. You're a better writer the more you read. Agreed. Um, so I actually didn't write until pretty late in my life, in my like late twenties. Um, I would, uh, so what happened was that I would tell all these stories about how, you know, like something had happened that was like really messed up or like some, uh, form of discrimination or something. And then I, so I would tell people these stories. And this one time my friend was like, So, you know, you feel all of this sort of like rage and anger and it kind of dissipates when you tell the stories. It's something that I've noticed, like you should you should consider writing them down instead. Um, And I was like, so anger management, (laughs) totally, 100 percent. And this is this friend is someone who I respect a lot. And I was like, okay, let me try it. Um, And I tried it and I just I found myself I found that I really, really enjoyed it. And I found that. in addition to sort of like the like anger management aspect of it, um, it also allowed me to ask questions and, you know, I'd be like stuck about something in my head and I'd be like, you know, why am I, why do I just like keep coming back to this? Like, what about it feels so tangled? And I found that when I wrote about it, 
it like it didn't necessarily disentangle it, but it allowed me to look at it from different aspects and like ask different questions and just really, um, really just like get a better picture of it. Um, so that's that's how I started writing. Um, and um, I wrote essays at first. Um, and then I found myself writing this essay about Hajar, which is like one of the essays that comes towards the I end of the book. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just like I found myself writing it. And then um, I realized that in some ways, like the essays in this book are essays that have been sort of like they're, they're things that I've been thinking about my whole life. Um, yeah. And so uh, writing the book sort of like followed naturally from there. How long did writing this book take you? Uh, it took about, uh, I'd say like maybe a year and a half. Um, so uh, the pandemic shutdown happened when I was about maybe like a third of the way through it. And I have the kind of job where uh, I have to be in person for it. And I just, I couldn't work from home. And so suddenly I had all this sort of like time and space to write. Um, and so I found myself sort of like speeding through writing the rest of it pretty fast. What did, what did your writing days look like? Um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, early pandemic, uh, stuff, uh, you know, um, cooking elaborate meals, um, doing a lot of writing in between, um, uh, just, yeah. Uh, and then a lot of, uh, zoom workouts, uh, to really get those, uh, juices flowing. Um, yeah. I so also working out good food and solitude. time and space. Yeah. 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 I also, um, this thing happens to me when I'm like working on an essay where I feel sort of like consumed by it. And I find myself thinking about it a lot, um, in ways that feel really fun. So I'll be like taking a shower and then I'll have like all of these sort of like, you know, um, ideas, or I'll be like, on a walk, um, and I'll have these ideas. And so there's this way in which it feels like I, I'm not a person who is like a daily practice, who has like a daily writing practice. Um, I wish I was, I wish I was like a lot more disciplined, uh, in that way. But, um, I definitely am the kind of person where, uh, once I get my teeth into an essay, it feels like I can't let go. Oh, amazing. Are you working on any writing now? I am, but it's like so much in the beginning stages that it feels weird to talk about. Okay. Okay. So like not even like a hint, not even like a, this is, is it like memoir? Is it fiction? Um, no, I can, I can give you a little bit more, uh, since you asked so nicely. Um, uh, it's fiction and, um, the general theme is going to be about, um, sort of like, uh, it's going to be about sort of like creative resistance in the Gulf um, and the way in which uh, people who live there um, are able to find ways to um, resist uh, despite constraints. Love that. I mean, yeah, you have such an interesting story of like your family being from a Southeast Asian country and then living in the Gulf and then moving to New York and like, becoming this like New York, this New Yorker, this definition of what it means to be in New York. And it's, I, oh, I'm so excited. That's amazing. So best, you're, no, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say best city in the world. Truly. 
um, your social media situation is Lamia is angry. Are you still mm-hmm. angry? Yeah, I am. And um, I don't you, think that's a bad thing. You sound so happy in your voice. Like I what is anger? Have, how have you redefined anger? Um, that's a really good question. You know, I was always an angry kid. Um, and the, as I've sort of like grown up, um, to me, anger has actually become like a motivating force towards justice. Um, I know that there's this way in which, you know, even like Islamically, you're taught that anger is like something that, you know, uh, if you're standing up, you should sit down. If you're sit down, if you're sitting down, you should lie down. Um, it's something that you're supposed to like let dissipate. But for me, anger has actually been something that I've been able to channel into things like writing or organizing or activism. Um, Mm. And so to me, just like, I don't know, I don't ever want to lose the ability to be angry at things, especially, Mm. especially at injustice. Love that. I love it. Hi there. I want to share with you a good deed opportunity. At ICU Foundation, we work to alleviate local homelessness and directly serve community members in need. We do this through our community pantry, family food bags, hygiene kits, snack bags, winter care packages, and grocery gift cards. Lately, we've been seeing incredible impact by partnering with businesses and organizations to host volunteer events where their teams make and distribute the ICU care bags. ICU is our response to a community member who, when we asked what she needed most, responded with, we just need to be seen. So if you would like to join us in seeing and serving the community, email us at contact at isyfoundation.org. Okay, back to the show. I also feel like I got a sense of some of your existential uh, uh, <laughs> crises. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's so correct. It's so correct, but it's a part of the journey, right? Like it's yeah. what we're on the planet to experience. That's why I welcome it. I mean, I know it's like not easy and none of it is, but I welcome it. And I, I always, I've, I, I, you know, I have so many queer friends and I have really redefined community for myself in so mm. many ways. And I realized that for me, community is really about collecting people who lead with love and service and curiosity mm. and are very open and ask questions without the intention of getting an answer or imposing Mm. their beliefs onto you, but simply as like a way to witness one another. And so I, I try, I I tend to gravitate towards people that give you this, give me the space to just be instead Mm. of trying to like fix anything. And I feel like growing up that it was a little bit different and I've asked questions since I was a kid. So that, has never changed, but it's as I'm evolving and growing up that I'm realizing, oh, not all questions are welcome to everyone or, or, or just questions just make people really uncomfortable. But that Mm -hmm. feels like the power of the question and why we, why we need to be asking them, why we need to be asking them more. So I'm grateful for the questions that you've posed here and in your book and, and how you talk to how you just approach things. Um, But I keep thinking about like young queer Muslims who um, are really 
who are really just struggling in this. And, um, you know, there are some tragic stories that I have happened in our spaces of, Mm. um, people, you know, dying by suicide, um, Mm. when they haven't been able to reckon their own identities or people, you know, just, I mean, I don't have to describe them, you know, these stories I'm sure, Mm -hmm. but I would love to just hear you speak to a person who is a queer person of a faith tradition that doesn't welcome queerness and is wondering if life is for them. Um, wow. That is, um, that's a really good question. And one that is really hard to answer. Um, I think, uh, to me, what I would go, what I would tell myself, um, when I was younger is that, um, the joys and there will be joys, um, are so worth it. Um, yeah, I know that's not a very sort of like comprehensive, um, answer and yeah. Well, you also, I just, I literally realized as I asked you that and it is, where is it? Right in the beginning of the book, you Mm -hmm. write about not wanting to be alive, but it wasn't in a dramatic way. It wasn't in a, like, it was just a very like clear fact. Like it was just like, this is how I felt. Yeah. This is what I'm going to do with this feeling. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely something that I remember vividly, this like idea of wanting to disappear. Um, it wasn't even like a wanting to die. It was just like a wanting to not have been, um, if that makes sense. Um, Mm. yeah. And, you know, there are, I don't know. I think like in some ways, some of that just never goes away. Um, but there has been so much joy in my life. Um, and there's been so much beauty and so much love. Um, I, I wish that I could go back to the younger me and I don't know, tell that kid that those would be things that would make everything worth it. Mm. Now I have a little bit of an, a more, um, maybe even more uncomfortable one, but I'm going to ask it. And if you say no, then that's absolutely beautiful and fine. But, you know, you're on here completely anonymously. I have no idea who you are, what your real name is. I'm assuming it's not Lamia, but I do feel like I have a sense of who you are for sure. Mm. And, um, but I would love to ask the person behind Lamia if you like, if you ever did feel like you wanted to share a little bit more about who you were or who you are with your parents or sibling, Mm. what would you say to them? Like, what do you want them to know? Um, so 
So I, I have shared with my sibling, um, with my brother, and he was really, really amazing and just like so lovely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wish my parents. Um, yeah, I, I just I, I wish they knew how much love was in my life. I can feel how grounded you are and how like clear you are and how you've really made this life your own. And I'm it's such an honor to witness it on the page and on the pod and just um, I look forward to seeing what comes next and what other stories come out of you. Yeah, same. I'm I'm also excited to see uh, where this like giant experiment in being a person <laughs> goes, which we're all doing, right? We're all engaged in this giant experiment of being a totally. person. Um, yeah. yeah. So the way we wrap these conversations is with a fill in the blank. So okay. the prompt is if you really knew me, you would know you can share one, two or three things. Okay. This is so in quote cringe, uh, but I have to say it. I love emojis. Um, I'm so into them. I, you know, really like uh, contain myself when I'm uh, texting. But if I could, I would just text in emojis. I just I think that they um, offer a really uh, fun way to um, to uh, open up what you're saying to interpretation. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm What's your favorite? Oh my God. These days I'm really into the one where it's like a little melty smiley, like the, the smiley. Oh my like gosh. My mom sends puddle. me that one all the time. <laughs> you see? Oh my God. Wow. Me and your mom. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Wow. Any other, if you really knew me, that's a really good one. Um, I really want to run a marathon one day. Um, I haven't yet, um, but I'm waiting for the right time. Um, I feel like it's something that I would get really, really into. And the last thing I need right now <laughs> is more things that I'm really, really into. Um, but it, it's on my list. It's yeah, it's on my list of to do. Wait, what else are you really into? Oh, um, you know, like I started this whole writing thing and I thought it would just be a hobby, but like now I'm so into it and I just, like can't stop doing it. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm really into that. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. I'm really into learning how to drive. Uh, I am off the, uh, the generation that just like, like that grew up uh, where I grew up that just like didn't learn how to drive. So I'm like really into learning how to drive right now. Um, yeah. Wow. I love it. Lamia, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to do this thing that I just heard Adam Grant start doing. And I didn't realize I was going to do this until this very moment, but he's been wrapping his podcast episodes, asking his guests if they have any questions for him. And since this was a two-way conversation and you absolutely don't need to do this, but just in case, are there any questions that you may have for me in this upward spiral? Wow. Um, I guess like, how is your heart feeling? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Yeah. It's like the worst question anyone can ask me. <laughs> it's so funny. I always tell people, I ask the question, but then I like hold my breath and I hope nobody asks me back. Um, I don't know if that's hypocritical, but my heart today is feeling really grounded and relieved. 
I feel like I have, you know, I've really gone through a lot in the last couple of months, but I, I don't even, I like say couple of months, but it's actually been a lot longer and a lot shorter and everything in between. It's just been really, really intense. And Ooh. so today I feel really grounded and grateful. I was really looking forward to this conversation and um, I just really wanted you to know that we are here to be of service in any way that we can and that your work is so important. Your words and your story is so important. And um, and it is an honor to get people riled up simply by mm-hmm. sharing your book because like that just tells me how much we all need it. Mm. That's how my heart's doing. Such a good answer. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lamia. I'm so happy that we got to talk. Me too. Amazing. Podcast Nude is an at your service production. Producers include myself, Adam Hafif, and Sara Isa. Editing by Nuran Morsi. The theme music is the song Thunderdome, Welcome to America by Portugal the Man. Extra gratitude and thanks to our storyteller, Lamia H. And make sure you get a copy of their memoir, Hijab Butch Blues. You can find Lamia on social media at Lemia is angry. As always, at your service. <laughs>